Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to the New Books in Military History. With me here today is Dr. Robert Sutton, who is author of a new book which just came out with, uh, with Casemate, and it is called Nazis on the Potomac, the Top Secret Intelligence Operation Which Helped Win the Second World War. And uh, Robert, uh, Robert Sutton is... Dr. Robert Sutton is formerly the chief historian for the National Park Service, and so he is very well positioned to tell us about this, and we are happy to see you with with us today, hear you with us today, Robert. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And, you know, we here are like the village of Manatevka. We rely a lot on tradition, and one of our traditions is to ask... Why did you choose this particular subject for your book? I was, uh, as you mentioned, the chief historian for the National Park Service. And um, in my mind, if you're a historian, uh, this is like the, the, one of the most wonderful jobs you can have. And I consider myself very, very fortunate that I was chief historian. But one of the things uh, for me that made this job so, so valuable to me and to my career was that there's a tremendous variety of history that I would deal with as the, as the chief historian. So at, at some points, I'd be working on the American Civil War. At other points, I'd be working on uh, the fur trade in American history. I'd be working on the Western movement in American history. Um, but in this case, I was working on World War II. And what, what happened with this particular project was... When I was appointed as chief historian, I started my job in October of 2007. Now, that's significant because just a couple of days before I started in this position, there was a reunion at Fort Hunt. Fort Hunt is where uh, this, this story takes place, which is in the Washington, D.C. area between Alexandria and Mount Vernon, if you're familiar with Washington, D.C., or if you're not, it's about it's about 15 miles from the U.S. south of the U.S. capital. So, just a few days before I became chief historian, there was a reunion at Fort Hunt of the soldiers who had been stationed there during World War II, and there was a story about what they had done there, which was they they had been interrogating the, the number of different things, but mostly they had been interrogating the high level Nazi prisoners during World War II. Uh, they also were translating important documents, and they were eavesdropping on conversations around the fort. I actually did not know about this before I became chief historian, but the, the superintendent of the park was a good friend of mine, so I asked for a meeting with the, the uh, folks who were doing the interviews of these soldiers, and we met, oh, I'd say a couple days after I started my new position and we talked about what they were doing. They said, well, they were about finished because they had run out of money um, to do these interviews. Well, I said, let me find money and you can continue this because we really have to try to find every soldier we can who was stationed at Fort Hunt to do oral history interviews. And it turned out that at that time, um, World War II soldiers were dying at a rate of about one every 90 seconds. And so it really time really was of the essence. And they were able to complete the interviews with as many as they could find. Uh, in some cases, the interviews were conducted um, either weeks or in some cases even days before some of these veterans died. So that's how I got interested in this topic. But when that project was finished, it sort of languished. Uh, they had these wonderful oral history interviews. Uh, the story was, was a, an amazing story, but nothing really had happened with it. And so um, I decided 
that I would that I would actually see if I could pull up the story together and, and publish a book about it. And so that's where that was a, the genesis of Nazis on the Potomac. And I got to say that the topic, this, the title of the book was not mine. My wife actually came up with it and my son agreed with it. And we decided that would be a good topic. So one thing which I ask, I would like always ask, and it's especially fascinating to me because you did talk about this a bit in the book itself. Can you tell us a bit about the obstacles which you've overcome when you were working on this book? Well, there was a gigantic obstacle, which was called COVID. <laughs> and what happened was I, I started uh, on this project and I had done some work on it. Um, I had gone through many of the oral history interviews. I had done some reading. Um, but when I committed to do the project, it was, it was really pre-COVID. And uh, so when I actually got into most of the writing, um, it was right in the middle of the, of the pandemic. And so the major opt- obstacles were I could not get into the U.S., into the American uh, National Archives, where all of the interviews were kept. I also couldn't even get into the archives of the local park, where they had made many copies of the interviews. So I would have, I would have very much liked to have gone to the National Archives and looked through some of the actual um, transcripts of, of, of many more of the interviews. Um, they were, uh, I couldn't, so I had to do deal with what I had. I actually had probably, uh, I had enough really that I could get a, a really good flavor of what the interviews or the, um, uh, actual interrogations were and some of the eavesdropping, um, transcripts were, um, but I would have, as I said, I, it would have been, I think a, a lot, I would have felt a lot better if I could have used the national archives, but that said, um, the information that I had available, which were primarily the interviews of soldiers who were stationed at Fort Hunt, and there are about 65 of those, became the primary source um, for the book. And uh, I am absolutely grateful to the park for doing these interviews and grateful to the soldiers who were stationed there um, to do them as well. The other thing that, that I would have preferred, if I would have been able to, would have been to go back and talk to many of the soldiers who were stationed at Fort Hunt for whom we had done interviews. So I would go through an interview, I would have a question about something, and I would have given anything to have gone back and actually talked to the person about something that was in the interview. But of course, the, 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 unfortunately, most of the people that we talked to um, had passed away and I was not able to talk to them. But I was able to talk to five of the soldiers who were stationed at Fort Hunt and um, was actually able to uh, find out a lot more information. And one of them, a fellow by the name of Paul Fairbrook, um, who was in a program called the Military Intelligence Research Section, provided me a tremendous amount of information about his program. So that was really a lifesaver for that part of the work. But it was a challenge. Uh, a challenge that was that I was able to overcome because I, I actually had enough information to put the book together. So I'd like to follow up a bit about something which you said. When you talk about how these interviews were, a lot of them were recorded fairly late on in uh, 2007 and onwards. And yet it seems from what you tell me is that they were not... Not available except if you have physically visited the archives. No, no. Actually, um, the, yeah. Let me let me correct that. Actually, they the I was very fortunate that a friends group to Fort Hunt and the park had made transcripts of all of these oral history interviews and they put them online. So I had access to not all but most online, and many that were not online. I had actually. Um, seen the interview before the archives were closed down. So I actually had access to almost all of these oral history interviews. So technology does, in fact, play a role here. It does. (laughs) Well, 
One thing which I find fascinating in your book is a discussion of how there were many people who were themselves formerly citizens of Germany and Austria, refugees from these countries, and they played a big role in the in the, you know, helping fight back against the Nazis, helping with this intelligence effort. And it reminds me about a, a, a quote which allegedly an American uh, American uh, professor, I think, said in this era about Hitler shaking the apple tree and the Americans collecting the apples. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> about, you know, about, about all of these professors and and uh, a uh, bright young scientists who are fleeing Germany, and uh, it. Uh, so I'd like to uh, to ask you: Can you tell our listeners a bit more about the role which these refugees, these former German citizens, played in this effort? Yes, I'd be happy to. And I think it might be interesting to people um, to hear a little bit about how some of them actually came to the United States, how they left uh, Germany and, and uh, Austria and came to the United States. <clears throat> I, I can't obviously talk about all of them because uh, there are too many, but let me just take a little sample. So one, one fellow who was at Fort Hunt, his name was George Weidinger, and he was Austrian. And when he was a teenager, he, um, he, he went to school one day, and the teacher said, you need to go see the principal. Now, I know when I was in school, if I was told to go see the principal, I'd be very nervous because it probably meant I did something wrong. Well, You're in trouble. I was in trouble. <laughs> well, he went to see the principal, and the principal said, you can no longer attend school. And he said, why is that? He said, because you're Jewish. Now, this was a double shock for him because, first of all, he couldn't attend school anymore. But second of all, he had no idea that years before, before he was born, his family had converted from Judaism to Christianity. He thought he was as much Christian as anybody in his town. And so it was a double shock um, that he found out that his family had been Jewish. Um, Eventually, he was, you know, he, he had a few, he was able to work a little bit in Austria, but eventually his family was able to um, come to the United States uh, they they settled in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and his father had been a very um, high level um, representative for a paint company from from Cleveland in Europe. Uh, actually, had a very successful business. When they came to the United States, his father, the first job he could find was um, working as essentially a stock man, stock uh, person in a building company which was, I don't know, three or four levels below what what he had done in Europe. But George said that his father, because he had been able to come to the United States, was the happiest man in the world because he came to the United States and had a job. So he was one. Another fellow who came, now George, when he um, uh, was at Fort Hunt, his primary duty was to um, listen in or eavesdrop on conversations of prisoners around the fort. This was an elaborate system that was at Fort Hunt. There was a microphones literally all over the all around the fort, mostly in rooms, mostly in the the rooms of the. Um, they weren't really cells. I mean, it was a prison camp, but it wasn't really cells. They were more like um, dormitory rooms where the prisoners were kept. They were bugged with uh, microphones, and there were monitors who would listen in on all the conversations around the fort. So that was his primary job. Um, at Fort Hunt. Um, a second fellow by the name of Rudy Pins uh, was from Germany. Now, he knew he was Jewish, um, and he didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to what was going on early on um, when Hitler came to power, but his parents paid a lot of attention, and they found out about a program that allowed a 1,000 Jewish children from Germany to come to the United States in the 1930s if they could either stay with family members or with sponsors. And they found out about the program. They applied in his, for him. Uh, he was accepted into the program. He uh, went to the United States, uh, actually went to Cleveland in the United States, 
stayed with a foster family, um, and became eventually became an American citizen. Now, one thing that I think was that was very important for me to understand um, as part of this story was that Rudy Penn's parents, who were Jewish, thought that Hitler was an aberration. They thought that Hitler was uh, a person that would not be accepted in Germany. And eventually he'd be voted out of office. So they were perfectly fine with sending their son to the United States, thinking that they would be reunited at some point very soon. Of course, they were very wrong. And Rudy Pins never saw his parents again. But at Fort Hunt, he um, was there for a fairly long time. He interrogated prisoners and he listened in on their conversations. And he was one of the really major people who um, was at Fort Hunt. Um, and one thing that he and all of these people had in common, not only were they fluent in German, that was their primary language, but they also understood the nuances of the language. They understood the culture. Um, so one, one person who was there said that he, um, had, he uh, had instant rapport with the Germans because he, was, he loved to play soccer. Uh, or what they called football, and so he could have he could discuss German football with them immediately. So this was one of the really advantage, great advantages to having these people here. Um, the third person I wanted to mention was was a fellow by the name of Paul Schoenbrook. Um, he did not remember much about his early life in Germany. Um, he um, he remembered that at one point he was told he could not be in an organization in Germany that was like the Boy Scouts. Um, and the school started being, he, had to, he could no longer attend an elite school that he was in. So his father, who was a very successful banker in Germany, decided uh, that he wanted to take his family from Germany to, uh, to Palestine. They went to Palestine. Uh, his father tried several businesses that were not successful. They eventually ended up in, in the Netherlands, and then they decided to immigrate to the United States. Now, his father um, was a pretty clever businessman, and when the, the immigration agent from the United States asked him, now, how do you plan to support your family in the United States? He said, well, I have a very valuable stamp collection. And the fellow kind of looked at him like, uh, yeah, okay. Well, what do you have? So he pulled out um, four stamps that were originals, uncirculated stamps of the dirigible uh, Hindenburg disaster. Um, they were worth a fortune. They are, at the time were worth about $1,000. And he showed that in a, in a catalog, and they were allowed to immigrate to the United States. Um, he... Uh, when they got to the United States, the father decided he really wanted to be American. The name Schoenbrook actually in, uh, translated meant um, Fairbrook, and so their name became uh, Fairbrook. And Paul Fairbrook has been a huge, huge benefit for me. He's still very, very much alive, and he has provided a tremendous amount of information. He worked in the area called the... the um, military intelligence research section in which they brought millions, literally millions and tons of German documents that had been captured to, uh, to uh, translate, interpret, and write very important reports about. So he was in that section. The third, fourth person I want to talk about was a gentleman by the name of Werner Moritz. And he, um, he had one of the most, um, one of the stories that was, <laughs> you'd look at, if you read about it, you'd say, mm, that sounds like fiction to me. Well, it wasn't. Uh, as a young man, he was allowed to go to England. His mother was English. He was allowed to go to England. He came back to Germany in November of 1938. And he was supposed to come back and with his family emigrate to the United States. But he came back during what was called Kristallnacht, which was a, which was a horrible um, situation which happened in Germany in which uh, the German thugs uh, destroyed many of the Jewish um, synagogues and businesses. 
uh, and things turned dramatically against the Jews in Germany um, during Kristallnacht. Anyway, when he returned, um, he actually was sent to a concentration camp for a month. For some reason, which he could never understand or explain, he was released from the prison camp. He was not allowed to have his family go with him to the United States, but he was allowed to leave. He went to England, eventually made his way to the United States, and eventually he worked um, at Fort Hunt. Um, he was uh, he later w- went to Europe, and he became a very important person there, um, interrogating Germans in Germany. So those are just a few examples. Now, Paul Fairbrook had a quote um, that I liked um, for their role in what they did during World War II, and he said, many of the German Jews and Austrian Jews who had immigrated to the United States when, when the United States entered World War II Many of them, what they wanted to do more than anything was to get a gun, go over, and shoot and kill Germans. That's what they wanted to do. But when they heard, when the the military heard their accent, realized that they were German, uh, they became involved with this intelligence gathering operation. And he and others realized that you can train a soldier to shoot a gun, to throw a hand grenade, to do everything militarily in a fairly short period of time, six weeks or six months. But six weeks, six months, six years, or maybe even a lifetime, you cannot teach anybody to have German as the primary language and understand all the nuances of German, the German language and the German culture. So they realized that what they were doing was far more valuable than um, if they went over and shot Germans. Which brings me about to something which I've read in your book, and it fascinated me because I've read a bit prior to this about the history of interrogations in general, whether it's in armed services or in, in law enforcement. And in your book, you talk about a person named Sanford Griffith, Major Sanford Griffith, whose research has shaped a lot of the techniques, a lot of the interrogation tactics which were used at Fort Hunt. And these were actually very advanced for their time compared to what we know was used at this time by, uh, by law enforcement. And it's comparable to what is used by the more advanced law enforcement organizations today. And so it's fascinating to me that this person had these really forward-thinking ideas about how to interrogate suspects, how to interrogate prisoners for his time. These were really innovative. And can you tell us about Major Griffith and his contribution to the art and science of interrogation? Yes, um, Sanford Griffith. um, His nickname was Sandy, so I will call him Sandy Griffith, uh, Major Sandy Griffith. Um, was born in the United States. Uh, he, uh, I did not talk in the book, I did not talk much about him uh, because I was afraid if I spent a lot of time talking about him, it might detract a little bit from what he did to train, to develop a training program to train soldiers to interrogate uh, Germans. So I didn't talk a whole lot about, about him, but his story itself is very, is, 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 is something that I think the, um, your folks might be interested in. He, he um, attended the University of Heidelberg, and uh, when World War I um, started, he joined the uh, Belgian army. He eventually switched over to the French army, and then when the United States uh, entered World War um, I, he actually uh, joined the, moved over to the American army, and he became a major um, person to interrogate German soldiers uh, during World War I. And because he had attended the University of Heidelberg, he understood a lot about German culture, and he was spoke German, not probably as a native, but pretty close. And so he was a perfect person to uh, interrogate German soldiers in World War I. Um, 
the Americans realized the, the benefit of interrogating uh, German soldiers, and they interrogated probably about 40,000 um, Americans alone during uh, World War I. After the war, he, he was in Europe for a while. He worked for several different newspapers as a correspondent. Um, he eventually, um, you know, got involved in the stock market. He was very interested in psychology, so he studied psychology um, sort of on his own, and he um, became a, you know, probably, a, probably I don't know if he was, we'd call him an expert, but he certainly took what he had learned in psychology and incorporated this into his training for, um, for intelligence. Now, in about 1938, 1939, we're not exactly sure of the time, he was recruited by the, by the uh, British MI6 to be an agent in the United States. Uh, this was not legal, of course, he, although the United States was, was uh, neutral and it was not legal. Uh, but he became an agent, and the primary purpose was to try to encourage the United States to enter World War II. He um, started a company called, um, uh, let's see if I can find it here. Um, I, I can't find it here, I'm sorry. Anyway, he started a company um, that was based in, um, based in New York, and the purpose of this company was to um, to do surveys of, Amer- of the American public to try to gauge their interest in whether the United States should join World War II or not. And he was stationed, his, his program was established at the former site of the World's Fair in New York. And they would interrogate, they would not interrogate, they would, they would interview Americans and ask them questions like, if you know, if something happened, they would give them a, a, a scenario. If uh, you know, if uh, if England uh, surrendered to the Germans, would that be enough to encourage you for the, to have the United States go to war? And they'd and percent like sixty percent say, "Oh, absolutely, we'd go to war if that happened." Anyway, that's what he did. Now, what's the FBI got interested in his operation? And he, um, they got interested. He um, was running this program, um, and they actually started investigating him, thinking he might be a spy. Um, he, they, the FBI spent, oh, a couple of months. They actually went to his offices. They talked to several people in his offices. They decided that he actually, he was not a spy. Everything was fine. The ironic thing is that, yes, he was a spy, but nobody knew that. We only have found this out recently from, um, from the, uh, um, the, the FBI files have been declassified. So now we know that they were interested in him. So that was his background, but he, he did, he developed this whole um, system for interrogating prisoners that became, as you said, a real model for uh, training uh, American soldiers to interrogate primarily Germans um, during World War II. And can you describe a bit uh, to our readers what his uh, system was like? I, I yes, I, I can. He he uh, said that essentially. Now, of course, I want people to go read the book. <laughs> find out from there, but I'll give you a little snippet here. Um, he said that between World War I and World War II, uh, things were very different in warfare. Um, for example, uh, the tank had been introduced in World War I, pretty primitive, but introduced. Uh, machine guns were introduced. The airplane was introduced. But of course, by World War II, uh, these um, systems had become far, far more lethal and, and effective. Um, even even um, uh, communication was very spotty in World War I, was now almost instantaneous um, in all the battlefields. So he talked about some of the differences. He talked about the difference in the German hierarchy, that 
during World War One, there was a lot of conflict between commanders, um, the German commanders, because they had different roles. But in World War Two, things were very different because Hitler was the ultimate source for everything military, and everybody understood that, and that was the way it was. So he talked about the differences uh, between World War One and World War Two. But when he started talking about interrogation, he said that about 75% of, of interrogating was science. In other words, you have certain things you're going to ask. Um, you are looking for certain types of information. Um, he used the word science. I don't know that I would use that, but it, it probably works okay. So this is the factual you, you want to find out things, and so you ask a lot of questions to try to find out facts. But he said also uh, about 25% is what he would call art. In other words, you aren't really looking for anything specifically, but if you are very clever in how you're interrogating a prisoner, you might get something um, that you're not really counting on getting and that the prisoner is not aware that he's telling you. Um, and so he said that that while 25% is art, in some cases, that's where you get the most valuable information um, by the way that you conduct an interview. Um, he also said that Germans, the people that, that, uh, that American soldiers would be interrogating, were pretty much like them. Uh, most had been farmers, shopkeepers, teachers, um, so forth, uh, like they were. And in all likelihood, after the war, they would go back to being exactly what they had done before. They would be shopkeepers, they would be farmers, and so forth. So he tried to make the Americans understand that the people they were interrogating were probably very much like they were, and that was very important. Um... He also wanted to break the myth about Nazis. Now, Nazis, the myth was that Nazis were so dedicated to what they were doing that they would rather die or be killed on the battlefield than be captured. Well, he made the point that, guess what? If you're interrogating them, they're not dead. So don't think of them as, as so dedicated that they are going to die no matter what, because they're here and you're interrogating them. And that was very important as well. Um, he also said that you should, you should look at them. You should not have, uh, you should not treat a prisoner. Um, you should not be hostile toward a prisoner. You should try to te treat them um, as if they're a human being as you are. You should not be hostile and you should not look for any you should not have a preconceived notion about, you should not let them know what you're trying to learn. In other words, you should not let them know, okay, I'm here interrogating you and I want you to tell me about blah, 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 and blah, right? No, he said what you should do is you should ease into it and let them talk. And he also emphasized over and over again the importance of allowing prisoners to talk. You should not interrupt them. You should let them go. And when you're making a transcript or whatever you're doing after the interview, you can edit things out. But if you let them talk, you never know what's going to happen. He said this is especially valuable for Nazis because they are going to be very bombastic about what they say. And the chances are, if you just let them talk, something very important might slip in the conversation. And that became uh, very valuable as well. Um, so these were, it was a lot, of, a lot of what he talked about were techniques. But he also emphasized that um, you do not want to, of course, no, nothing ever came up about actually torturing prisoners. That just was not part of the conversation at all. Um, and, uh, he wanted to make it very clear that you, that, that just, you'll never get anything that way anyway. So, um, if you use all these techniques, you probably will get the, the most valuable information. And that's just, that's a, that's a very, very brief summary, um, of his, of his techniques. Now, 
Another person who comes up in your book, and as I understand, while this person is mentioned by name, there were apparently others who had a similar sort of contribution. You talk about somebody named uh, Gustav Hilger, right? who was a German intelligence officer, and he provided the U.S. government with a lot of information, not just about the Nazis, but also about the Soviets, because at the time... The Soviet Union was a very closed system, and you, the Allies had little knowledge about some aspects of the Soviet culture, and so they rely on testimony from the Germans who are fighting against the Soviets about what is happening in the Soviet Union, what does the country work like behind the scenes. And in your book, you talk about how Hilger and some others were retained after the war, and a lot of the early ideas which the American intelligence had about Soviet society in the Cold War was shaped by the testimony from these people. To what extent do you think this testimony from people who were, after all, these people were very hostile to the Soviet Union, they were, after all, German Nazis, to what extent did this testimony skews the American perceptions of what they should do about the Soviets after the war. Well, let me let me say a little bit about about Gustav Hilger um, at the outset here. He was he was German, but he was born in Russia. Um, his father was a was a German businessman who uh, was in Russia. He spent much of his life in Russia. And early on, he became the economic officer in the Russian or the, the German embassy in Russia. And by the time World War II came around, he probably was as knowledgeable of Russia and the Soviet Union as anybody in Germany, certainly, and possibly anybody outside of Russia, period. So his insights into Russia were enormously valuable first to the Germans and later to the Americans and the Allies um, after World War II. Now, he was, well, when he was in, in Russia, he watched how the Russians were preparing in case they entered World War II. He went to uh, Hitler and Van Ruppertroff and told them that they were very unwise to even think about attacking Russia because the Russians were far more prepared for warfare uh, than, than uh, Hitler or any of the German um, higher command thought. And of course, it turned out he was right. They were prepared, and, and because of the war with Russia, that was one of the major reasons that uh, the Germans lost World War II. So he was incredibly knowledgeable about Russia. And so after the war, uh, he was brought to the United States. He was brought to Fort Hunt. <clears throat> he actually stayed there for, uh, at Fort Hunt for, for several months. In fact, he even had a little, they actually gave him a, a private uh, quarters to live in at Fort Hunt. He was very popular among the soldiers at Fort Hunt. They liked him. In fact, he might have been the most popular um, German who was at Fort Hunt ever. Um, but he was very, very open about, about, uh, Russia, what he knew about Russia. And, um, he wrote volumes of information about the Soviet Union, um, that became very important. So one thing that, um, that he said, the Russian piece of the Russian people were very, um, they were very concerned about um, the, the situation they had in Russia. They were uh, uh, they uh, were very unhappy. They didn't like the situation. Uh, but he said, if if you if if the United States just wanted to attack Russia militarily, that they probably would support uh, support their government. So he said that if the, the best way to deal with Russia was uh, to develop, to prepare militarily, which, of course, happened during, uh, during the Cold War. But he said equally important, e an equal importance was to develop, to understand their psychology, understand them psychologically. And so uh, I think in, in, in large part, 
the CIA developed a whole psychological uh, program for dealing with the Soviet Union. So his contributions uh, at the outset of the Cold War probably were as valuable, maybe even more valuable than anybody else, uh, any information from anybody else um, dealing with the Soviet Union. So he was, um, I don't know if he was the most valuable prisoner um, that came to Fort Hunt, um, but he certainly was one of the most valuable. And um, he, he actually stayed in the United States after the war. Well, I mentioned earlier, Rudy Pins uh, became very close to um, Hilger and his wife. Um, they didn't drive, so he would actually would pick them up and drive them um, around Washington, D.C., uh, would spend, would socialize with them. Um, and actually, one of the pictures that I have in my book shows Rudy Pins with Mr. and Mrs. Hilger um, at, in front of the, the uh, little, little place that he stayed in when he was at Fort Hunt. So he was, he was enormously valuable um, to the whole effort after World War II, to the to um, the Cold War. So I'm just going to gently press you on this topic. Okay. Do you, do you <laughs> think that this person was, uh, do you think that his perception of what is happening in Russia was colored in some way by the fact that, you know, his family, of course, had to leave the country that the, that the Germans were not treated particularly fairly, or perhaps by German ideology, was it was his perception colored in some way? You're talking about Hilger. Yes, I think um, you know. I I honestly don't know. Um, I don't think so. I think he. Uh, you know, after. After he, well, when Barbarossa, Operation Barbarossa, when Germany attacked Russia, of course, he was expelled from, from Russia, from the Russian embassy, came back to Germany. As far as I can tell, um, he provided as much information as he possibly could um, to the Germans about Russia to help them fight the war against Russia. So I think he was a very, you know, very dedicated to helping. Um, to helping uh, Germany against the Russians. Now, of course, at the beginning, he'd said, you know, don't go to war with them because it's not a good idea. But after they went to war, he seems to have provided as much information as he could. Conversely, after the war, um, I think he uh, did everything he could to help the United States and the Allies understand what they were up against, um, against the Soviet Union. And I think he um, he did a I think he did a, a, a really really pretty amazing outstanding job um, helping the United States prepare for for the um, for the Cold War. Um, after after his time in the United States, he actually went back to Germany. He actually uh, became was was involved in diplomacy uh, for the West German government, um, and so. Uh, based in Bonn, he was so obviously the Germans still considered him valuable, and so um, later in life he actually returned to Germany uh, in a diplomatic post. So I think he, um, I think he was not. I don't. I don't. It's hard to say. I'm, I don't really. I'm not a psychologist, so it's hard for me to say. But I think he uh, really uh, his his view was not really colored by um, by what he did. Which, you know, I'd like to circle back. Now, that's a State Department expression, which, you know, I'd like to circle back. Okay. <laughs> to um, our conversation about Sandy Griffith. And as we mentioned, the interrogation techniques which he introduced were not only were they very advanced for his time, but in many senses they were... You know, uh, he, he, there were le- uh, less co- uh, confrontational than we imagine. There was certainly no torture. There was uh, there was an attempt not at least not openly be pressuring the uh, the other person unless you had to. And the phrase which stuck with, uh, with me from your book is 
we, 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 should, we should start at a pressure level of 1. We can dial up to 10 if we have to later. But if we <laughs> right. start at 10, we will have difficulty going back to 1. Right. And the reason um, I ask about this is because we know that the interrogation techniques which were used by U.S. intelligence in the uh, later eras, in the Vietnam War, for example, we hear lots of horror stories. In even recently, there were some controversies with enhanced interrogation techniques which were used. And so what happened between then and now? How is it that... Was this knowledge lost somehow? How did people go from these advanced techniques to what we hear about from uh, from Vietnam and uh, later wars? You know, I don't know. I don't know exactly what happened, but I my observation from from this uh, writing this book and from other things um, are that there really are. I think there are three types of prisoners for interrogation. Um, I think on the one on the on the an extreme level, there are zealots, <clears throat> and most zealots, not all, but many. Let's say let's not say most. Let's say many zealots are willing to die rather than give up any information. They just they just will not give up any information, no matter what what you do to them. You can torture them, you can do anything you want, but they just will not give up any information. And this happened um, at Fort Hunt. It, it did happen. Um, now, what they would do if they encountered somebody like this, um, they would, uh, first of all, lock them. The Fort, Fort Hunt actually was a fort that was built around the turn of the century, around 1900. And there were these gigantic gun emplacements that were still there that had concrete bunkers underneath where the guns had been that had steel doors. So they would lock the prisoner in these, in these bunkers for a day, hopefully soften them up. Some cases they did, some cases they didn't. Um, if that didn't work, they had another te- that, technique that worked incredibly well, which was there were two soldiers there who were German, or excuse me, were Russian Americans who were dressed in Red Army uniforms. And if a soldier didn't talk, they'd say, well, how about if we have Ivan here take you to the Soviet Union. Maybe they would like to hear what you have to say. And in most cases, that worked as well. But probably 20% or so of the, of the zealots who came through Fort Hunt or were interrogated in the field just would not say anything. Now, we don't think that, that any of these prisoners were ever actually sent to the Soviet Union, but what they would do if they didn't talk, they just would simply send them to a POW camp for the remainder of the war, and that was that. So that's one. The, the, I think the zealots, they're, they're just not going to say much no matter what, and uh, no matter what happens, whether they're tortured, whether they're threatened to be sent to the Soviet Union in this case or what, they're just not going to talk, and, and, and you're probably not going to get much out of them. On the other end of the spectrum, um, there are people who are absolutely terrified of being a prisoner, of being tortured in any way, and they will say anything that, any question that's asked, they will answer. But in some cases, they'll be asked a question that they do not know the answer to, and they're so afraid of being tortured that they will come up with an answer that they hope will be considered credible, and they won't be tortured because of that. Now, there's a there's an interesting example, not at Fort Hunt, but during World War II, um, an American pilot was shot down over Japan, and uh, his name was uh, uh, Lieutenant Marcus McDilda. He was shot down. He was in a, a Japanese prison camp when the nuclear bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They they threatened to torture him to give them information about the atomic bomb. Now, MacDilda didn't even know that the, about the Manhattan Project. He didn't even know that there was an atomic bomb. But he was so concerned about being tortured, he said that the Americans had a thousand atomic bombs, and the next sites they're going to drop them on were going to be Kyoto and Tokyo. And this is what happens in many cases if there is torture or there is a threat of torture. People will tell 
their interrogators something that they hope will be believed so that they won't be tortured. Now that, so you don't know what kind of information you're going to get. Are you going to get valuable information? Are you going to get something that's not, not useful, not true? Um, and so that's the problem. Then in, in between, there's another group and they they sort of vary. Um, some will, some doesn't take a whole lot of prodding and they'll give information some will require a lot of prodding. So again, using the example of Fort Hunt, if they're threatened to be sent to the Soviet Union, they will tell everything that they know. And so that's sort of the middle group. Um, I, you know, it's, it's it, the, after uh, Iraq, there was a Senate study done on what was called, and I love it, enhanced interrogation. I mean, why can't they just call it torture? It's Torture for crying out loud, and they found that it was not very. It, it was a it was a horrible horrible blot on American intelligence gathering, and furthermore, they found out that they did not really get very good information um, from this uh, from torturing people. So, how the United States went from a from a pretty humane but successful intelligence gathering operation in World War II to relying on torture in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. And uh, not succeeding very much, was it? And not succeeding very much, to me, is just just bizarre. It's just strange that they would do that, realizing that it's not working very well. (laughs) That's, that's, I think, one of the reasons that history is valuable. Um, You know, I, I think maybe if they had read about what they were doing at Fort Hunt, uh, if they understood what was going on at Fort Hunt and, and different um, uh, interrogation processes during World War II, maybe they would have said, well, that worked. Maybe we should do that instead. So in a, in a funny way, the fact that this was classified and very few people had access to it sort of maybe prevented the United States government from learning from its own experience. Could we say right. that? I could. Uh, let me just say another thing, though, um, about about interrogation that um, that I think was important with uh, at Fort Hunt and, and elsewhere is uh, the Americans would try to do as much research as they could about a person that they were interrogating. And let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, for one thing, the um, the Americans captured were able to capture the, uh, the the phone book from the Reichstag, right? So if they were interrogating a high level officer who was at the Reichstag, they say, well, you know, we we know that you your phone your phone exchange was was number thirty five, and we know that you made eight hundred and seventy seven calls from your phone, and we know all the people you called. Well, they would look at him like, how on earth do you know that? Well, they'd say. Well, we have all the phones in the Reichstag bug, so that's how we know about it. So now they're off guard because they don't know what the Americans know. So that's another technique. If you do the research to, um, you know, to really find out what's going on, it can be helpful. The other thing was they had a, there was a, a MIRS, the Military Intelligence Research Section, produced one of the major um, contributions that they made, and really one of the major contributions of all of intelligence for the war, was producing what was called a Red Book, or it was called the um, Order of Battle of the German Army. It listed every single division um, in every single um, part of the German Army. Um, and so they would, if they interrogated somebody, say, oh, we see that you were with the 10th Panzer, Panther, Panzer Division, we know who your officer was. We know who the chief of staff was. We know where you were. We know everything about you know, how many tanks you've lost. Well, again, they would think, well, if they already know that, I don't know how much I can hide from them, so I might as well tell them what I know. But my favorite one, though, is that the Germans kept, um, they kept uh, legal, uh, as part of the military, um, brothels, um, prost- houses of prostitution. They were, they were official and soldiers and sailors um, were encouraged, actually, to use these houses of prostitution. Uh, they were re- required to carry a card with them that told where they were and who was the person that they had seen at these, um, at these uh, prostitution houses. 
And of course, the purpose for this was if there was a, you know, someone showed up with a venereal disease, they would know where to go to, to take the person who was at the brothel offline. Well, some of the soldiers and sailors who went, they, they, if they captured, if, the, if uh, the interrogators had access to one of these cards uh, for a particular soldier or sailor, and they would interrogate them, you say, oh, you know, we saw that you went to brothel number 36J. Uh, you saw Maria. What did you think of her? Well, of course, the first thing was, how in the world could they possibly know that? But the other thing was, in many cases, the Germans felt very guilty about this. Maybe they were married. Did they want their wife to know? Of course not. Or maybe they were very religious, but they had a little slip, and they went to a, to a house of prostitution, and they didn't want to go to hell because they'd done that. So, again, anything that they could use... Um, in any kind of information that they had available for a particular soldier always was valuable for getting information. So from this, I, I'd like to, you know, as I've said, uh, tradition is a very, a very important element of the show. And so I'd like to conclude with a traditional question. Can you tell us what books you are reading right now, where you are in your book journey, perhaps something you could recommend to our readers? Sure. I, um, well, first thing, when I finished, when I finished reading, when I finished reading, um, or when I, when I finished going through this, all of the corrections and everything in this book, which is fairly time consuming, pretty Pretty all in, all involved. Um, when I when I finished, um, I wanted to read anything that had absolutely nothing to do with history. <laughs> and there's one there's one author that I enjoyed a lot um, uh, several years ago, uh, an author in New Mexico by the name of Tony Hillerman. Um, he wrote books about the Navajo uh, Nation, and he focused on two. Um, Indian, they wrote novels about two Indian tribal policemen, um, Jim Chi and uh, Joe Leaphorn. And he would talk about them solving crimes on the Navajo reservation. And I just, I enjoyed him a lot because, uh, I enjoyed Tony Hillerman a lot because, first of all, they were fun to read. Uh, they were interesting, but he also did, I think, a fairly credible job of talking about uh, Navajo Indian culture. Well, he passed away a few years ago, and his daughter, Anne Hillerman, has sort of picked up the, the mantle from him, and she's writing, uh, has picked up writing about Jim Chi and Joe Leaphorn. But also, uh, toward the end of Tony Hillerman's uh, novels, he talked about a woman police officer, Bernadette um, Manuelito, and actually, Jim Chi ends up marrying her, so he focuses. She focuses on her. But anyway, so I started. Re- I picked up a couple of Ann Hillerman books and started reading them, and that was a lot of fun. Um, I also have read, and I'm going to read a little bit more. Um, uh, a f- person that I've gotten acquainted with because because her work was very helpful in informing my work. Um, an author, a historian by the name of Beverly Eddy. She wrote a book on Camp Ritchie where many of the people who came to Fort Hunt trained. That was an intelligence training program at Camp Ritchie. Uh, the title of her book is um, Ritchie Boy Secrets. And um, so she, um, I've read parts of her book. I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing. So that's, one, that's my next thing on my list is to read hers. And I, I read a book um, recently that I really enjoyed by Graham, Graham Allison called The um, Destined for War, um, which is about, it deals with uh, Thucydides and his, and what he wrote about the Peloponnesian War, what, what sorts of things drive countries to go to war. And I was, I was very intrigued with that and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I also, uh, for several years, my father um, died um, several years ago. He was a, a minister, a, a Christian minister. Uh, when he died, he left behind a, a partial autobiography. 
And <clears throat> I picked it up and for several years I have been um, working on that to try to get it in some kind of shape to publish. I don't know exactly how I will do it, but um, I've been working on that. Um, and one of the things that I recently went back and read, uh, which I didn't think about at the, at the time, was uh, when he was a little boy, uh, probably about five years old, um, his family had to deal with the Spanish flu, and he, his brother, and his mother were all sick. They were very sick. His father, who was a railroad engineer, um, uh, rented a, a place, a room in town. His oldest brother was with him. He was not, neither of them were sick. But, uh, you know, I didn't think about it at the time, but now I go back and look at it, and I realize how how difficult it must have been for people to deal with the Spanish flu um, at, at that time. So um, those are some of the things I'm, I'm either reading or working on. I've also had an interest for years and years. Um, I'm originally from Oregon, from the state of Oregon. And there's a story that's been around forever in Oregon that there's a buried treasure from a Spanish galleon on a mountain on the Oregon coast called the Neocani Mountain Treasure. And actually, people have gone and tried to dig for the treasure for years and years and years and years. And uh, when I was in Oregon, I came across an article from, or a couple articles from the, from the late 1800s, 1879, that a man... Uh, not far away from this mountain, dug up a Spanish treasure, and he was upset. It was in the local newspapers. He was upset because you were required at the time to turn over something like that to the U.S. government, and you'd be reimbursed. And he was very upset because he felt like he'd been cheated by the government. Surprise, surprise. Anyway, I don't know if I'll do anything with that, but that's something that's been sort of circulating around in the back of my mind. Well, I'd like to thank you for being with us today, Dr. Sutton. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 